Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. National American Radio acknowledges the generous support of the GJGAGDJDJJG. The last G is for group. From fully inside our studios at 10 Lala Plaza, New York City, I'm Mason Lane, and this is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Stories under pressure, stories underwater, stories cracking, stories have broken, like the first stories, stories going and running their mouth, stories that sing or have been sung in song. Listen out for them, maybe before you listen to this. Sure, they're just stories, but in fact, they're stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is to you from National American Radio with love and care. It is produced in collaboration with the Surface to Air Sound Collective and the men and women folks at Soluble Radio in the United Kingdom. You can find them on and off Twitter, but you can find them on Twitter at Soluble Double Underscore. Episode 5, In the Ghetto. Before we end the beginning of the opening of this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts, I want to tell you about the new NAR app. If you enjoyed National American Radio's incredible output of sound audio, radio and audio radio, radio and podcasts, we hope you'll take a few moments to download the NAR app from your app store, and then take a few moments more to download it again from our website, which provides many of the same versions, but fully optimized for our financial department. You'll receive exclusive downloadable content, including unique episodic offerings from across the National AR family, interviews with our award-winning production teams and journalistic podnalists, and extended versions of shows like The Week in Sidewalking, Allow Me to Crouch Here, Please, and One, Two, Three Economics with Walton Fish. That's the NAR app. Click through to it from our homepage at national slash American Radio Now Forward Roll. And don't forget to leave a review and a rating. I'm Mason Lane, and thank you for the loan of your ears. And now we continue with Cold Case Crime Cuts. A man lies on the street, face down. There's a gun in his hand. A crowd gathers, no doubt attracted by the sight of a man lying on the street, face down, with a gun in his hand. He's a young man, an angry young man. But while he is angry, he's also dead. But how did it come to this? The full version of this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts is available exclusively through the NAR app. Download it now from the App Store or from the National American Radio homepage. The full version of this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts is available exclusively through the NAR app. Download it now from the App Store or from the National American Radio homepage. The full version of this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts is available exclusively through the NAR app. Download it now from the app. Thank you.
well aware that some people consider ghetto to be a pejorative term, and so we have taken care to avoid revealing which specific ghetto we are referring to. Yet it's fair to say that America is crisscrossed with ghettos in much the same way that it is by roads. But as it's roads that lead in and out of these ghettos, that's hardly a surprising number of people. What we can say is that the young man in question died here in the same zip code as where he had been born, not as an angry young man, but as a newborn baby. We do not know how angry he was as a baby, but statistics lecture us that there was probably some crying involved, at least at some stage. We do know that his mama cried before, during and after his birth, the result of sadness, anger, frustration, and a whole catalog of other negative emotions. It gives me no pleasure to say that she cries in person on this podcast, but it was vital that we included it in the final edit as it adds emotional weight and some possible award nominations to an already tragic series of events. So, this story ends eight years ago with a young man dying in a Chicago ghetto, surrounded by a crowd that he can't see because he's dead and facing down. Since this story ends with a dead man, you might also assume that his own story ends with his death, and it does. But was that death a crime? If he'd obviously been killed by someone who wasn't himself by accident, the answer would be yes. But this is not a clear-cut crime case. Because although there were bruises and cuts on the body, none pointed towards a clear cause of death. There were no witness reports about seeing, hearing, or smelling a struggle, and no autopsy was ever carried in or out. This was just a young man who seemed to have dropped down dead in the street with a gun in his hand. Although, as I'll soon discover, there's rather more to the gun than meets the trigger. So far then, so no crime. But as I'll reveal next after the music comes in, the angry young man himself was a criminal. A career criminal. He roamed the streets of a ghetto at night, stealing and fighting as he went, constantly trying to satisfy his burning hunger, a hunger for fighting and stealing, and also for food, which gave him the energy for the stealing and the fighting. And just as he seemed set to rise into the depths of the city's criminal underworld, he stole a car, tried to run, didn't get far, and fell face down in the street, one cold and gray Chicago morn. Ing. I want to find out what happened to this kid. I want to find out what happened to him that morning, and also what happened to him the night before that morning, and also what happened to him in the years before that. Who was he really, apart from being angry, young, and the subject of this podcast episode? And what's the deal with that car he apparently stole? Are all Chicago mornings cold and gray, or are those just the ones when someone is killed? Can you get cold and gray mornings outside of Chicago? I'm Mason Lane, and I suspect you can. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts, all the way from New York. Chicago is that way, and I went there recently to examine this truly extraordinary tale. A tale of tragedy, books, coincidence, mystery, desperation, crying and cold, gray, mornings. Are we in a ghetto yet? Uh, well, not exactly. Maybe now? Is this a ghetto? Well, no. Uh, that That's not a helpful tour. Sure. I mean, I'm not offended, but I, I guess some people... Yeah, yeah. So, all right. If we just stop here. So, Jasbo, we're here in a Chicago ghetto. Tell me about it. Uh, well, it's actually kind of interesting because in the early 1900s you had Italian and Eastern European immigration to Chicago and they each found their own territory. Jasbo Sputnik is a crime reporter for the Chicago Large Herald and yet he doesn't seem to know much about the ghetto. The kid's body was found just along here. The kid's body was found just along here. It's a nondescript side street, not much more than a large alley, of the type I imagine are found in ghettos the world over. 
I see a rat scuttle past and wonder if it scuttled past the body lying here eight years ago. I suspect not. That's about four times longer than the average lifespan of a rat. So the body was lying face down. How far is this from the main street? It's around 20, 25 feet. Jasbo may not know much about the ghetto, but he sure knows his measurements. The police report confirms that the body, when it was still alive, made it just over 20 feet along this alley before he met his fate of his face meeting the street. The car is parked up across the entrance to the alley. The driver door was open, so the assumption was he'd stolen it, driven it to here, tried to turn into a too narrow street, jumped out and tried to run. Obviously, he didn't get far. The kid was found holding a gun. I asked Jasbo about this, but formulated as a question. The crowd that had gathered round said that the body was holding a gun? Yeah, it was kind of a surprise. In my experience, guns often are. Because it wasn't loaded and there were no bullets recovered from the crime scene. He hadn't actually fired it. Right, but if he'd drawn his gun, he must have been worried, right? Worried about someone chasing him. No, I, I mean the gun had never been fired, ever. It was totally brand new. And that, in a nutshell, is a bombshell. A bombshell about a gun. And as guns also fire shells, it's certainly enough of a bombshell to warrant a new music cue. Remember, there was no obvious cause of death for this angry young man. As a death, it was unexplained. And you might imagine that such an unexplanation would lead to an autopsy. This, however, would be a purely imaginary autopsy because there wasn't one, which is kind of strange. The Chicago police seem to have made next to no effort to conduct a proper investigation. And next to no effort at all, next to no effort, is the least they could have done. We'll come back to more about this lack of effort later. But at this point in the story, which is kind of the end, but we're going to go backwards, so it isn't, I need to talk to the dead kid's mama. I mentioned her earlier. It was she who diffused permission for the authorities to conduct an autopsy on her son's body and, without an autopsy, no cause of death could be determined and no suspects could be charged with anything. Although there have never been any suspects to not be charged in this case. Eight years on, the case itself is as cold as the Chicago morning on which the body was discovered. And Mama seems to have no interest in pursuing justice. Maybe she would rather remember her son as he was before he died, angry, upright and alive, his face approximately six feet away from the street level at which it ended up at. Maybe she simply wants to let the ghosts of the past fade away in peace. Do you simply want to let the ghosts of the past fade away in peace? Yes. As I deduced. Our first interview had been a brief one. The dead kid's mama had been unable to stay for long as she had childcare commitments. Not to him, of course, he's dead, and even if he wasn't, he would be in his mid to late 20s now and old enough to look after himself. In fact, his mama has another child, a daughter, who was born on the exact same cold and gray morning that the first one died. A tragic coincidence befitting a tragic family. We schedule a second, longer interview for the following day. I remember when my boy was born, there was snow flying. Mama is a tough woman. She's been through hell in the ghetto. There's an almost superhuman strength behind that piercing, steely glare of hers. A glare made all the more steely and piercing by the steel piercing above her left eye. There's an old Yiddish expression for that kind of expression, but it doesn't apply here since Mama is Italian, not Jewish. It was a cold and gray morning. So, another cold and gray Chicago morning. I guess. Because obviously your son also died on a cold and gray morning. In Chicago. In another tragic coincidence, Mama's son's both birth and death took place in identically temperatured and identically colored mornings in the exact same city. Maybe if he'd simply left the city before he died, this wouldn't have been the case. But that's just speculation. 
Before continuing with this pierced mama, I wanted to find out a little bit more about births and deaths in this windiest of cities. On average, there are about 40,000 births in the Chicago metropolitan area every year, and around 23,000 deaths. That's in total. So that figure includes everything from homicides to deaths from illness and natural causes. Christengel Flounce is the director of the Illinois Center of Public Health in Illinois, Chicago. She's not wearing a lab coat for our interview, although I believe she owns several. So her expertise is beyond question. How many of those births are in ghettos? I don't know where they are exactly, and that term is a little problematic. Yeah, okay. Let's stick to the whole city. Do all those births and deaths take place in the morning? No. There's a fairly even spread across any 24-hour period. But is it always cold? Well, well, a corpse will become cold. No, as in the climate. Do births and deaths in Chicago only occur when it's cold outside? For births, it's actually the opposite. There's a peak in late June, early July, and then more elderly people die in the winter. And how many elderly people are born in the winter? Uh, well, very few elderly people are born at all. None, in fact. And yet, it's possible for younger people to die in winter. Yes. Being young doesn't mean that you can't die in the winter. I assume it gets cold in Chicago in the winter? Yes, it does. I'm Mason Lane. So births and deaths, young and old, can occur all year round, even in ghettos. It just so happens that a child was born and died an angry young man on separate, completely unrelated, cold and gray Chicago mornings. It really is a coincidence. But there is one strand of Mama's story that remains stranded, and that's the snow. She said that on the day her little baby child was born, there was snow flying. If you don't believe me or had forgotten, you can rewind the podcast and listen back to her saying it as many times as you like. It's no wonder the medium has become so successful. I remember when my boy was born, there was snow flying. Although now there's no need to rewind at all. I asked the kids late, not late mama about her choice of words. Why do you say the snow was flying? Because it was. The thing is... Snow falls. It doesn't really fly. Saying it flies kind of implies it could go back up whenever it wanted to. As if it had its own form of jet propulsion or tiny propellers. I mean, if there's a gust of wind, snow could sort of glide, I guess, but it's still not really flying. I get that it's the Windy City, so maybe, maybe more snowflakes are, I don't know, maybe here they get buffeted around in the air more. Yeah? So why not just say the snow was gliding or something? There there was snow falling. Or falling. Yeah, that's clear. I know what you mean now. Thank you. Snow can't fly. Maybe I'm going in a little hot on the kid's mama, but her reluctance to answer reasonable questions and the fact that she diffused any kind of autopsy on her angry young man all those years ago have really gotten under my skin. It's made an already wide-open case open wider still and wider, and it's left so many questions unanswered. I need to ask more of them, and I will. But in order to find out how this tragic kid grew up in a ghetto, got angry in a ghetto, and ended up face down on the street in a ghetto, I need to find out about his childhood. The child needed a helping hand. This is Joffrey Prosciutto. He's now Dean of Tile University's School of Applied People Skills, But before that, he spent 25 years working for the city of Chicago as head of the Department of Family Support and Outreach. Joffrey is an affable enough man with a sad expression that's partially hidden behind a tired mustache. We meet in his plush office in an equally plush corner of the Tile University campus. His office furniture is fairly plush too, although I've certainly seen plusher, Scandinavian for instance, and I have also seen plusher mustaches. 
During our interview, his efficient PA, Cheryl, remains in the outer office, dealing with calls and emails. If we're talking about his mama, if there's one thing she didn't need, it was another hungry mouth to feed. You mentioned another mouth. Which was the first mouth? Her own mouth. She probably has a mouth around about here. Joffrey points to an area of his face just under his fatigued mustache. He's right. That is where Mama's mouth is. It's a common enough story. One night stand, a surprise pregnancy that in turn leads to a disurprising birth. And with that birth comes another mouth. It's certainly one thing she doesn't need. Sure, she's in the ghetto. She's in, well, that's a divisive term. Sure. But yes, money's tight. She's a single mom. She's working long hours, crying a lot. The baby is left on his own. We should have recognized that the child would grow up to become an angry young man someday. Which day? Not any specific day necessarily. Growing up is a gradual process. Clearly, Joffrey is still deeply affected by this case. Sometimes it looks as though he's stopping himself from crying by biting his lip. His lower lip. There's a drowsy mustache in the way of the upper one. Look, we we should have done more. This was a hungry little boy growing up in the... Growing up... No male role model in the house, left to his own devices. He's playing in the street, he gets into fights, he has a runny nose. We should have stepped in. He needed a helping hand. But I have to say, we've learned lessons, and now we provide a caring environment, and we actively strive to listen. Did you hear that? Yes. Sorry, she's over-efficient. No problem. So what kind of helping hand did the child get? He didn't get any helping hand, I'm ashamed to say. Money and resources were always stretched too thin. Sometimes we'd simply turn our heads and look the other way. We'd look the other way as the world turned. It, it was easier that way. Which way? But, okay, take a look at you and me. All right. I'll be the kid. You'll be the Department of Family Support and Outreach. Joffrey's got this all worked out. I realize that this isn't the first time he's tried to rationalize his department's failings. So you're looking at me now, right? You can see me. You're not too blind to see, are you? No, no, I, I can see you, sure. Okay, good. And now, turn your head and look behind you. Okay. Can you still see me? No, I can't. So, there you are. You're the Department of Family Support and Outreach. You've turned your head, you've looked the other way, and now you can't see me. And you're the kid. Right. Although, I know you're there, I can still hear you. But do I sound like a poor little baby child to you? No. Exactly. So who's to say that there's anything wrong with me? I see. No, you don't. You're too blind to see. That's the whole point. It's not the whole point. But it is a point for us to take stock. Chicago's Department of Family Support and Outreach looked the other way when this child was a hungry little boy. With no father and a mama who didn't want or need his mouth to feed, it's no wonder that he became angry. Locals would see him playing in the street, his nose running almost as much as his feet because of the cold wind blowing in the ghetto. He was aggressive and would often get into scraps with other kids, but at this stage in the story, he hasn't started to roam the street at night, steal cars, or buy guns. He's not a criminal yet, but he'll become one soon enough, and he'll make his mama cry some more. Both of those things, and more, will happen in part two of Cold Case Crime Cuts, which will be played after a short break. I'm the voice of Mason Lane. Hi. This is the voice of Mason Lane. Just in case you didn't know, we've got a whole range of merchandise for Cold Case Crime Cuts available from our website. You can purchase shirts, sweatshirts, sweatpants, sweatbands, sweatbags, tote bags, and shirt bags. And you can pay for everything in individual installments of one single lump sum for the total amount owed. Right now, we're offering all our customers numerous percent off of winter wear and summer winter wear. It's ideal for cold gray mornings in cities, windy or otherwise. Also, towns and rural communities of both clement and inclement weather. Head over to cutshopcrime.org and use the offer code 
Mason Lane, that's me, at the checkout. That's the offer code Mason Lane, that's me, for numerous percent off. Thanks to Arroyo Mouth for their support of this podcast. Arroyo Mouth is the new name in intelligent toothbrush design. Every one of its 2,500 bristles is connected by a Bluetooth to its own app for complete control of your plaque sculpting habits. That's over 2,000 separate apps helping you keep track of your brushing dimensional development and optimize to alert your dental hygienist if a problem is detected. Sign up at arroyamouth.ca to get your first injection logistics pack for free. That's arroyamouth.ca. Arroyamouth. Open wide and say teeth wherever possible. The kid wanted more. He'd always been the poor little baby child, but he wanted to change that. I'm Mason Lane, and we're cutting cold crime cuts, just in case. In a Chicago ghetto, a poor little baby child has been born to a single mama who cries a lot. The city's social services want nothing to do with this powder keg waiting to happen. The child gets no helping hand and grows to become an angry young man. Later on, he'll be found face down in the street with an unfired gun attached to the end of his dead arm. There's no obvious cause of death, and the mama has diffused permission for an autopsy on either her son, who is dead, or herself, who isn't, and therefore doesn't need one. His death remains a mystery. But it seems to me that he could have made some powerful criminal enemies, perhaps, and so I need to find out more about the period of his life after his birth, but before his death. What was he like? It was time to take this to the streets. He was a real tough kid. Rusty Vatican was one of this dead kid's closest childhood friends. He still lives in the area, which isn't the best ghetto I've ever seen, but it isn't the worst either. We'd be tearing it up out here most days when we was little. A lot of scrapping with other kids, you know? Rusty is now a highly respected bouncer in downtown Chicago. Clearly that scrappy childhood has served him well. His face is a roadmap of cuts and scars, although the road they map out probably ends in a fist. We're standing near to where the crowd gathered around the face-down angry young man, and Rusty is surveying the scene warily, as if preparing for battle once again. He's an intimidating man, there's no question, and if there was a question, he'd intimidate you into answering it yourself. But I do ask some questions. I have to, for the sake of the podcast. National American Radio. How old were you two when you were playing in the street? Kind of till about eighth grade, something like that. Until high school. And did either of you go to high school? Uh, yeah, I did. A, a bit. The kid, uh, not so much. Not of his taste, you know what I mean? He sort of broke away. Went off the end of the deep end. Okay, but when you were 12, 13... Oh, back then, this was our block, you know? We was kings around here. We'd, uh, we'd take kids' lunch money once in a while. He was a thin kid. He was always a hungry little boy. So, you know, we'd take the money and go get something to eat. No cars or guns? No way. We mostly ate food. But you two were getting into fights. I did some stuff I'm not 100% proud of, all right? But I never went further than just, you know, playing in the street, taking a couple of dollars from other kids. And then when I was 16, I started doing some bouncing, making honest money. I stayed clean. But the kid wanted more. He'd always been the poor little baby child, but he wanted to change that. I'm reluctant to push Rusty further. Actually, I couldn't push him at all. He's a large man. But this is the crucial part of the tale, when juvenile bullying and roughhousing transforms into full-blown criminal crime. I check back in with Mama. He was a good kid. By now, it's extremely obvious that he wasn't. Parents can be so stupid. 
although part of me wants to let his mama carry on believing this about her young man, at least until this episode is released. The kids soon left bouncing Rusty behind, as harmless daytime lunch money thievery turned into more violent roaming around the streets at nightery. But his mama remains in total denial about this. He was a good kid. He was kind. I simply can't hold it in any longer. But he really wasn't, though, was he? Mama suddenly looks at me again with that steely, piercing glare of hers. And this time, I notice just how red her eyes really are. I'd missed this before. I must have been distracted by the steel piercing. It's as if she's been crying constantly for the last eight years. Her red eyes are almost like red eye in a photograph, although that's caused by a camera flash being reflected in a retina, not by excessive crying. Or maybe it's more like a red eye flight, although that expression is colloquial, more to do with tiredness from late night plane travel rather than excessive crying. And Mama is far from being a commercial airliner. In fact, I've already established that she knows next to nothing about things that fly. It's a tense moment, and I wonder if I've kicked a nerve. But then her expression suddenly softens, and a clear liquid consisting mostly of lipids, water, and mucus starts to bubble out of her lacrimal glands. I, yeah, I know. He, he fell in with a bad crowd. He was, I, he didn't mean any of it. <laughs> and his mama cries. And cries and cries. Quite honestly, the rest of this interview was a waste of time. No sound editor in the world could have cleaned up all that crying and fashioned it into coherent sentences. Ours tried, but he couldn't. I feel so sorry for him. With the kid, it was all about defiance. He was always looking to fight. Rusty Vatican, six foot four, vertical and horizontal. He was relentless. He had this burning hunger. So he was still undernourished. Still hungry? Yeah, but now it was one of them metaphorical burning hungers. He had an appetite for conflict. Mixing metaphorical burning hunger with an appetite for conflict is a recipe for a hot disaster. He started to roam the streets at night. The cold streets? Yeah, but if you got yourself a burning hunger, they don't seem so cold anymore, you know? I'm starting to like Rusty. He's got a philosophical side to him that I hadn't suspected, and I guess the lesson is clear. You can't always judge a book by its facial scars. I ask him if he knows what the kid was doing while hungry and roaming the streets at night. He learned how to steal. And then when he learned how to steal, he learned how to fight. How did he learn how to fight? He stole a book about it. He had this reputation. Steals anything, fights anyone, roams anywhere, and he does his homework. I can't avoid the elephant in the ghetto any longer. I have to ask Rusty, so what do you think happened to him? He died. But how do you know? He was face down in the street, a, a gun in his hand, but no shots fired. The, the car nearby. Nobody examined the body. No suspects. Uh, I don't know. Rusty obviously has something he wants to get off his gigantic scarred chest. I figure the best thing to do is simply to wait. Look, because this is kind I of a mystery. He... Yeah. Go on. The kid was roaming these streets at night, okay? Out for himself, doing the fighting, doing the stealing. But there's some bad people around here. Real serious businessmen. Now, I don't know what happened to him, but uh, let's just say it's possible. At some point, he could have roamed into the wrong group of businessmen and pissed the wrong group of someone off. Or maybe it was just a freak accident. Maybe it wasn't. You see what I'm saying, Mason? I don't see it, but I hear it. There's an unspoken word hovering in the street air. No microphone can pick up an unspoken word, no matter how sensitive it is. 
And the one we're using here, a Sennheiser MKE 600 with a supercardioid polar pattern, is very good for recording even low-level speech in non-studio conditions. Instead, I have to join the dots of the unspoken word. This is Chicago, after all, and Chicago, like most cities, has a history. This is a city with Italian families, large Italian families, the home of the untouchables, the site of the Valentine Saints Massacre Day, the stomping ground of the archetypal gangster A.I. Capone. I know Rusty doesn't want to say the word out loud in the open ghetto, and I respect that. But here, safe in a recording studio in New York City, hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles away from any large Italian families, I can say it. Mafia. It's a touchy subject, and the Mafia can touch people very hard indeed if they want to. Yet there are some things we can't even say on Cold Case Crime Cuts, and I do insist that everyone working on the podcast has to think about my safety. What we can say, and what we will say in part three, are words that examine the final hours of this kid's life. How this angry young man breaks away, how bad that break is, and how it might be that he ends up face down near a car and even nearer to a gun. Was it a hit? Or just a big, unusually accidental death? That's part three, in full, after a completely different kind of break. This kind. NAR's podcast family is made possible by Financial Crack Systems, an evolved off-world division of extendable wealth in beautiful Hartford, Connecticut. Transform the way you invest with streamlined interfaces, aggressive transfer hubs, and 365% of dollar coins. Over 14 million Americans are already cracked into Financial Crack Systems, and they're using it to lower overhead punches, save time, and optimize numbers points in the smaller numbers elsewhere. Pop your account today. That was a break. This is Mason Lane, Unbroken. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts, currently in a Chicago ghetto, eight years ago. An angry young man criminal is found by a gathered round crowd on a cold gray morning in a side street with a brand new gun in his hand, near a car he'd apparently stolen. He's face down. There's no immediately identifiable cause of death. There's no autopsy, and the Chicago PD soon leave the case open to gather dust. His childhood friend, Rusty Vatican, suspects that he may have fallen foul of the city's mafia. It's possible. After all, one of the ways you can fall after being fouled is face down. Really though, this is a mystery. A possible motive, yes, but no surviving evidence and no real suspects. The only way forward in this one-way cul-de-sac is to examine the final hours of the kid's life. His mama is no use. She's still crying. But Jasbo Sputnik, a Chicago crime reporter in Chicago, is not no use. He is use and he is standing with me near to where this dead kid posthumously attracted a crowd. It's hard to piece anything together. Nobody's wanted to talk about this case, especially since there have always been rumors about the mafia being involved. That's why the police always kept it at arm's length. I think about the kid's arm stretched out lengthwise on the street with a gun, but I don't say this thought out loud until just now. But that was in post-production. And most of this is second or third-hand information. Most witnesses only have two hands, so... Sure. I appreciate we need to tread carefully on those extra hands. Yeah. All right. So, tell me what we know about the kid's final last night. Well, we know that he was roaming the streets as usual. Around here? Yeah, around the ghetto. Oh, you said it. Uh, um... Can, can we cut that? Sure. A couple blocks from here, there used to be a 24-hour bookstore. It's not there anymore. There was a gasoline incident. 
a gasoline incident. Sure. Anyway, a few weeks earlier, the kid had gone in there and stolen volume two of a book called How to Fight. He'd stolen volume one years before. Then this night, he suddenly turns up at around 3 a.m. looking beaten up and bruised. He runs in, steals three more books, and then roams off down the street. Which books did he steal this time? How to Buy a Gun, Volume 1, and How to Steal a Car, Volumes 1 and 2. An hour or so after that, he's found face down here in this side street. So what happened to this kid to make him suddenly decide to steal over two more books in this enterprising series of self-help guides? Where had he been? Jasbo said that we should head around the corner from the location of the demise to a new site. We attempted to record a walk and talk as we did this, but a couple of loud buses went past and then a police car with the siren on, and that ruined it, so we just kept the end bit. So there's the fact that before roaming into the bookstore that night, the kid was in desperation. We're standing on the site of desperation. Full name, the Desperation Diner and Grill, an all-night eatery that was a favorite hangout of the local Chicago criminal fraternity. It's not here anymore. There was a gasoline incident. On the night, there were several reports of a fight breaking out in desperation. A lot of angry young men, maybe 15 or 20 of them, both in number and even possibly age. It started off as just a regular brawl, hands, feet, a few clubs, maybe a few knives. The kid's not going to be left out. He won't be that little boy with a runny nose anymore. He's got that burning hunger. He sees this as a chance to assert himself. And don't forget, he's learned how to fight in the ghetto. Anywhere, really. So he's in this brawl, hitting anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter how notorious a criminal they might be. But at some point, someone pulls out a gun, and the kid doesn't have a gun. What he does have, though, is street smarts. A witness reported seeing a young man in desperation break away from the fight and buy a gun. But in order to know how to do that, he needs to learn. And he needs to learn fast. So he runs to the 24-hour bookstore. He realizes that he needs to get a gun, but also realizes he needs an escape route out of the ghetto in case he ends up actually shooting someone. And that's why he steals a copy of How to Steal a Car, as well as How to Buy a Gun, because it's hard to steal a gun. Rusty Vatican agrees, like this. Listen, I'm not a fan of guns, but yeah, you can't hold someone up and steal their gun if you ain't got a gun that you can use to hold them up and steal their gun in the first place. Am I right? Pretty obvious. So the kid steals how to buy a gun, skim reads it, and then goes to Big Sal's all-night gun store across the street. It's not there anymore. Was there a gasoline incident? No, Big Sal retired. Anyway, we know the kid goes there because when he was found face down in the street, he had the brand new gun in his hand and the receipt, instruction manual, quick start guide, and extended warranty was stuffed in his jacket pocket. Only the troubleshooting guide was missing. Ironic. I asked Jasbo if we can talk to Big Sal, but he tells me that he died just last year while on holiday, the unfortunate victim of a drive-by shooting at the National Gasoline Museum. So after buying a gun, the kid heads back to the Desperation Diner and Grill with murderous intent. Maybe. Who does he want to shoot? Maybe nobody. Maybe somebody. Maybe he doesn't even know. His hunger's burning and his blood's boiling, yet the night is still cold. Maybe that's why he's angry. Maybe that's why he's gone and got himself a couple of books about how to steal a car and buy a gun. From here and onwards, there are no more concrete witness reports. It's all just rumor and assumption. And assumption is a dangerous plaything. 
I would assume. Picture it. The kid is holding the gun he's just bought. He's heading towards desperation. This is Desperation Diner and Grill. And then someone who was fighting with him earlier sees him and sees his gun. And the kid, instead of shooting at this guy, his new gun's not even loaded because one, he hadn't stolen any kind of book pertaining to bullet purchase, and two, there was no receipt for any. He suddenly turns and tries to run. Maybe this other guy starts to chase after him. Maybe not. The kid doesn't get far. Next thing we know, he's found face down in the street just around the corner from desperation. What about the car? I think everyone got the car wrong. The assumption is that he'd stolen it because it was badly parked across the side street entrance. The driver's door was open and he'd recently stolen a book called How to Steal a Car. But the fact is, he hadn't had any time to read that book. Look at the timeline. Jasbo takes a timeline out of his fanny pack. See? He leaves the bookstore, Skim reads how to buy a gun, buys a gun from Big Sal's, and goes straight back to the Desperation Diner and Grill. Then maybe there's this confrontation with someone outside the entrance. Maybe he runs around the corner, and maybe he runs towards this car pretty much at random. In my view, maybe it was pretty much just some crappy hunk of junk someone maybe had parked badly across the side street. Maybe he didn't steal it. Maybe it was just there. Maybe he saw it as an escape vehicle to get the hell out of the ghetto to maybe get away from the fighting or from whoever may be chasing him. That's a lot of maybes. Just to give you a heads up, the theory you are about to hear is extraordinary. And if it's ever proved, it should guarantee Jasbo Sputnik, this podcast, and me, Mason Lane, Pulitzer Prizes for podcast crime solving. Think about how the kid was found. Jasbo Sputnik. Face down on the street with a gun in his hand, near a car with the driver's door open. It looked like he'd try to run from the car, but hadn't got far. 20 feet? Right. There's no obvious identifiable cause of death on the body. Not that the Chicago PD even pretended to investigate the cause of death. He'd been in a fight already that evening, so there would be plenty of weird marks and bruises all over his skin that could hide something more unusual. There are now a few possibilities. For instance, the kid could have run 20 feet from the car and suddenly dropped out of a heart or brain attack. It's possible, but unlikely. He was young, and all that stealing, fighting, and being angry had kept him in excellent cardiovascular condition. Or he could have run 20 feet from the car, suffered a hemorrhage resulting from a delayed reaction to a blow to the head received during the earlier fight, and fallen facewards onto the street. Or he could have been poisoned by someone in the mafia. But that isn't really the mafia's style. Or... He was electrocuted whilst attempting to hotwire the car with one hand while the other was holding the gun and was thrown 20 feet along the alleyway, landing face down and dead. How about that? He hasn't learned how to steal a car correctly because he hasn't read the book. He hasn't had time. And he's at a disadvantage because he's holding a gun in one hand and panicking because he's being chased or thinks he's being chased. He sees a badly parked car. He grabs two wires randomly in an attempt to start the engine. They're the wrong ones. He gets a massive shock and he's sent flying away from the vehicle. Flying, just like the opposite of snow on that cold and gray morning when he was born. Exactly. That was narration. Okay. A tragic accident? Perhaps. We can't know for sure. Sadly, the car has been crushed, along with any hope of a proper investigation. Jasbo's electrocution theory hinges on one moment, the moment when the kid was about to pull the trigger on someone, but then instead turned and tried to run. I wish I could ask him what he was thinking at this exact moment, but he hasn't given any interviews since his death. There's no way the kid would have 
would have tried to kill anyone. No way! Rusty Vatican thinks there's no way this kid would have tried to kill anyone. No way. It wasn't like that, you know? Lunch money? Yeah. Fights and stealing? Sure. Guns? No. And also, he couldn't have killed anybody because he never stole any copy of How to Kill People from the bookstore. So how would he have known how to do it? People said after that that the book was still in the store because it had been filed in the wrong place. In with the John Grishams. It seems fitting somehow, as this is a mystery worthy of even Grisham's most average work. What really happened in that moment when he turned and ran? Joffrey Prosciutto, the former head of Chicago's Department of Family Support and Outreach, has an idea. Although since this tragedy is partly his fault, I'm reluctant to give him more airtime on one of NAR's highest-rated podcasts. But I relent. So he and his mustache are coming up now. I like to think that the kid suddenly remembered his mama. He remembered that she was due to give birth to another little baby child. He realized that she'd probably be crying. So he tried to hotwire a car so he could get to his mama's house as quickly as possible. It's kind of wonderful, actually. I hope that's what happened. No, but possibly. Or maybe I'm just being naive, imagining this angry young man, this stealer and fighter, at the exact moment that he's about to gun someone down for the first time and cement himself to a street life of hardened crime, finally thinking of his mama and his soon-to-be new sister. Maybe he catches the eye of his would-be victim, but he can't bring himself to shoot him, not least because he hasn't bought any bullets. Instead, he turns and runs to a car. He tries to steal it. He doesn't get far. There's a fizzing noise, a bang. He comes to rest face down in the street as, somewhere in that cold and gray Chicago morning, his mama is crying yet again and giving birth to another little baby child in the ghetto. If this weren't an audio-only medium, it would be incredibly cinematic. And that would have been that. But then, on my very last day in Chicago, I'm contacted by a police informant in the mafia. He tells me that his name is Francophile Maldivani. Franco. And he says that he knows that the kid's death wasn't an accident, and that he knows who murdered him and how. It's my last day, so we hastily arrange to meet downtown, in a quiet corner of Grant Park. Listen, they fight in desperation. That was all bullshit, okay? There was this guy they've used before. He'd already got to the kid before he went into the diner that night. I know his name. He lives in the ghetto. Those guys call him... The full version of this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts is available exclusively through the NAR app. Download it now from the App Store or from the National American Radio homepage. The full version of this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts is available exclusively through the NAR app. Download it now from the App Store. Thank you. Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexandra Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright and Naomi Denny. The writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradig. Our cabin crew today are T-Tumbo Trunks and Cornell University Jr. Carrie Lynchpin is writing the authorized biography of this podcast. It is due out later this year under the provisional title, A Cold Case Companion, the book. Pre-order it now to receive an exclusive spined copy. Original music by Jake Yap. Associate Associate, Cliff Pathmanathan. Album artwork by Simon Fowler. Our engineers are Tony Chernside and Louis Blatherwick. Executive Bathroom by Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes, thanks to unusual productions and Audi. Cold Case Crime Cuts is brought to Climax at the studios of National American Radio at 10 Lala Plaza, New York City, 
and it is a proud member of the Surface to Air Sound Collective and Soluble Radio. Visit your local ghetto to find out more about the issues raised in this podcast.